On today's episode, I'm sitting down with R. Keith Lofton. Dr. Lofton is a professor of philosophy and apologetics at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, and he recently helped write a book called Stand Firm, Apologetics and the Brilliance of the Gospel. It's a really great book. Um, I've obviously have read it myself and recommend it to you. Um, it's a good uh, introduction to apologetics and Christian philosophy. And uh, not only does it go through uh, some arguments for God, Jesus, and the Bible, uh, it talks about the nature of truth um, and, and things like that of, of a more philosophical uh, nature and substance, but also it talks about how the gospel is not only true, but beautiful and good and attractive. And this is, uh, I thought, uh, was a unique contribution as well as an important contribution uh, because... You know, when we're talking with skeptics or people of different faith, non-believers in general, um, not only do does uh, does Christianity need to resonate with their intellect, but also with their heart, uh, if you'll allow for that sort of analogy. Um, we don't just care if something's true. We want to know, is it good? And it seems, actually, that that is a, a perfect approach um, to today's culture, um, in which we are think more with our hearts than our head so to speak. And so people today really want to know, is Christianity good at all? Um, Because there seems to be the idea that it's not, that religion is bad, uh, especially Christianity, that Christianity has shaped the United States in all its bad ways or whatever. I don't really know exactly what they're saying. But anyway, it's important that we be able to articulate why Christianity is not only true, but beautiful. And the book does a good job, a beautiful job, of doing exactly that. I think you'll enjoy the episode, so I'll shut up. We can get to the interview now. Don't forget to uh, share, like, review. Uh, give us a review on the podcast if you're listening. And uh, don't forget to head on over to the Patreon page. There's a link in the description if you want to listen to or watch the bonus segment with Dr. Lofton, Five More Minutes with Dr. Lofton. And uh, we discuss a, a few more things over there. Uh, you can become a supporter of the show for as little as a dollar. Let's get to the episode. My name's Hayden Clark. This is Help Me Believe. Well, hello and welcome to another episode of Help Me Believe, the show about Christian apologetics and theology. My name is Hayden Clark, your host, and I'm excited to introduce my special guest to you. He is a professor of philosophy and apologetics at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, and he is the author of uh, the book of today's discussion, which is called Stand Firm, Apologetics and the Brilliance of the Gospel. Dr. R. Keith Lofton, how are you doing this morning, sir? Doing well. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks so much uh, for coming on. I really appreciate it. I'm, I'm sure you got a busy schedule, so I'm really glad to have you on sporting the Starbucks coffee. All right, man. <laughs> it's a good way to wrap up spring break week. Yeah, for sure. So um, before we get into the book and, and some questions that I have for you about the book, if you don't mind kind of introducing yourself to the audience uh, for those who may not be familiar with you. Uh, well, Keith Lofton, I, I've been here at Southwestern Seminary uh, as well as the undergrads college here, Scarborough College, for seven years. I, I got interested in apologetics when I was an undergraduate at Bible College, had a fantastic apologetics prof, Dr. Stephen Cowan, who uh, edited the Five Views book on apologetic method, and uh, sort of got hooked from there. All right. Well, um, so you... you uh... Have you taught anywhere else besides Southwestern, or kind of what's your academic history? 
I did. I taught at my alma mater, Southeastern Bible College. It was a small Bible college in Birmingham, Alabama that sadly went, uh, became defunct and doesn't exist any longer. I, I hope that my time there didn't uh, have a causative effect. <laughs> Uh, and so that's my where I taught previously to coming uh, here to Scarborough College. Okay. So do you uh, do you kind of travel and speak at apologetics conferences, go to churches and stuff like that, or? I do. Uh, not as often as uh, as others do, but I love the chances I get. I I just returned from a week in Hawaii and uh, Honolulu at a lovely uh, church where a friend of mine is the pastor at a church called Wailai Baptist Church. And uh, J.P. Moreland and I spoke for them, uh, uh, their Waterhouse Lecture Series, and it was a great time, great time to be with a, sort of a hero in defending the faith, J.P. Moreland, and mm-hmm. uh, helping the church there. Well, that's awesome, man. Down there in Hawaii, suffering for the Lord. I know suffering that. for the Lord. <laughs> it's just a beautiful place. Yeah. Well, uh, I've read the book. Uh, I don't have a hard copy. I read the digital copy, and it's uh, it's a great book. I really enjoyed it. Um Maybe uh, you could explain to the audience maybe what kind of uh, unique contribution that this book offers to the um, apologetic world. You know, this is uh, there's a there's a few books out there on apologetics. So maybe what does what does stand firm uh, offer uniquely that maybe other books don't? Well, thanks for asking that. Um, I co-wrote the book with my with my uh, very dear friends and and colleagues, uh, Dr. Travis Dickinson and Dr. Paul Gould. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, in fact, Dr. Gould just just published another excellent book on cultural apologetics that came out this week. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah, it's a, it's an excellent book, by the way. He'd love to come on and talk to you about it. Oh, thank you for speaking for him. So, Dr. Dickinson <laughs> and Dr. Gould and I uh, taught together uh, here at Scarborough College, and we of course teach. Uh, we have an MA in apologetics here, and we teach apologetics to the undergraduates as well. And we tried different textbooks, and there are, as you mentioned, there's a lot of really good books by J.P. Moreland, Paul Copan, and William Lane Craig, guys that we really look up to a lot. Um, But we just couldn't find a a book that we thought satisfactorily presented all of the full waterfront of topics that we believe need to be covered in a class. Uh, And then also we couldn't find a book that we thought uh, portrayed the truth of the Christian worldview, not only in terms of its brilliance, that is, uh, its uh, logical attractiveness, if you like, but also its uh, beauty, which I, I hope we'll get a chance to talk about a little later. For sure. Yep. So I think uh, as I was reading, I kind of I picked up on um, that aspect of the gospel not only being true but also being beautiful. It's kind of a a unique contribution, so I figured that was probably where you would go with that, and we'll probably get to that here in a little bit. But um, first of all, let's, I was kind of hoping we could define some terms so that people kind of knew what we were talking about. So when we talk about, let's just start base level here. When we talk about apologetics, what is it that uh, we're talking Are we apologizing for something, or like what are we talking about here? It seems like every every year, you know, I teach the intro to apologetics class, and, uh, you know, it's kind of a running gag with apologists, but... It, it never fails. Somebody in the room just doesn't understand why we're requiring a course in, you know, learning uh, how to how to be uh, re- penitent for being a, a Christian. Yeah. Why do we apologize for being Christian? And so I have to sort of explain. No, that's not really what it's about. 
Yeah, the question, what is apologetics? Um, as I'm sure your listeners will be well aware, uh, we, we see a few times uh, this terrific Greek word, apologia, used in the New Testament. It's, it's, it's a familiar Greek word outside of the New Testament as well. You know, we see it if you read Plato's Apology at the story of Socrates going on trial on these sort of trumped-up charges for promoting atheism and, and corrupting the youth. Uh, he is giving his apologia before the, the public court system. Uh, the, the Apostle Paul, when he goes before the governor, uh, and then first, uh, and Peter, in First Peter 3.15, when he says that we need to be ready to give a defense. It's that, it's that word, apologia. And it uh, doesn't mean, you know, self-defense. We're not, this isn't like the Karate Kid kind of a thing. It's more like a legal defense, a, a, a preparing your case. Uh, we're, we're acting uh, in behalf of the gospel to, to as, as Paul says in uh, 2 Corinthians 10, to, to tear down ideas, poor ideas that, that are raised up as obstructions to believing in uh, the Lord and the gospel. Um, and it's, uh, in my view, it's more than just trying to show the rationality of the faith, although certainly that is involved in it. I think that there is an evangelistic, um, uh, bent or end to apologetics done correctly. We are trying to persuade people that the Christian worldview is, is in fact true. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. There's definitely, I, I would say, I would think, uh, um, an evangelistic end, as you said, to apologetics. Um, and I don't think you've properly done apologetics if you haven't, uh, yeah, you know, it. tied it in with evangelism. Um, so there's this chapter on, on truth and knowledge, and I really like that uh, chapter for sure. Um, it got pretty philosophical pretty quick. That's probably why I liked it so much. <laughs> That's where my mind tends to float. But um, what what is truth? You know, we live in a, in a, in a culture where... You know, there's your truth and my truth and Oprah's truth and whoever's truth. But so, <laughs> what what is truth? That's a oh. interesting converse, uh, question. What is truth? Uh, it's been said that Oprah is America's favorite theologian. Yeah. <laughs> Sadly, that may be true. It may be. So I need to give my colleague Dr. Dickinson here credit for he's the he's the professional epistemologist on the team. Yeah. And was the primary author of the of the chapter that you refer to, and he did a fabulous job. Um, we think that truth is as traditionally conceived. Uh, you can find this as far back as Aristotle's Metaphysics. Maybe it's Alliance eleven twenty two or eleven ten twenty five d thereabouts, where he says this seemingly funny statement. But if you listen close, I think he's got it. He says that to say of what is that it is not, and to say of what is not that it is, is false, and to say of what is that it is, and of what is not that it is not, is true. So that sounds like a riddle, but it's yeah. just a really sort of a pedantic spelling out of what seems to us correct. Truth is this relationship that in, obtains between sentences or thoughts or propositions or ideas and reality. So if it's in fact raining outside my office window and I form the belief that it is not raining outside my office window, well then as Aristotle put it, that I'm saying of what is not that it is, and therefore I have a false belief or truth fails to obtain. So truth has sometimes been called this relationship of correspondence between uh, those propositions, 
uh, and the way that reality actually is. Okay. So <clears throat> you kind of took it from a, um, just kind of looking at the world and saying this is kind of how we describe things, but is there any kind of like a proof or something that, you know, because somebody may – you know, sometimes people will counter and, and say, yeah. you know, well, that may be true for you, but it, it's not for me. So how do you kind of prove that no truth definitely is objective and we know what is yeah. true? And so yeah, how, how do you true. prove that to, to folks who you do run into this kind of question a lot these days, don't you? Yeah. We do want to leave room for opinion. People do have different opinions. Um, some some people have a really nasty opinion that the, the Dallas Cowboys are the team to cheer for. A nasty opinion? Well, and we all, I think, believers know that the New Orleans Saints are who they're ought to cheer for. But that is a matter of opinion, of course. There's no really objective matter. No, you know, you're not objectively incorrect for cheering for the Dallas Cowboys. There may be moral issues in the neighborhood, (laughs) Uh, but when it comes to factuality or being incorrect or correct, I don't think there's clearly an issue there. Um, and it does seem that there's a lot of gray areas when it comes to matters that issues that seem to be matters of fact, for example, um, end of life ethical issues or the proper way to interpret, um, difficult books from history, say a book by Nietzsche or Plato's Republic or something. Um, so it seems like these are matters of fact. It either is or is not morally appropriate to, you know, um, pull the plug on someone in a coma. And it can be difficult to ascertain what is the correct or incorrect course of action. But it doesn't mean that that it's a matter of relativity, so that it's, a, it's right for you and wrong for us. Well, something is either morally right or morally wrong, simpliciter. <clears throat> and so we want to leave room for that, too. We're not denying that there are really genuinely tough issues out there. Um, think in areas of advanced physics, uh, you know, philosophy of mathematics. They're really hard issues. But the difficulty in ascertaining what is true shouldn't be conflated with the claim that there is no objective fact of the matter. Mm. So even with those provisos in mind... Uh, I do think that there are some good reasons to not think that what's true for you is not true for me and vice versa. Uh, Paul Copan has a really nice little book called uh, When God Goes to Starbucks. Mm-hmm. And he does a good job also of sort of dealing with that kind of comes up at Starbucks caliber, you know, yeah. objection. Um, so... Uh, sorry, I've sort of lost. lost oh no, my... you're fine. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. So I, I think you gave a pretty good explanation there. So um, another term that often really needs to be defined, but often isn't, because we just you know sometimes in the conversation or debate we just we forget to stop and define our terms. But another uh, common term that's misused and, and and is worth defining is the word faith. Uh, yeah. In fact, I think if we would define this word properly, uh, before all of our debates and conversations with skeptics, things would go a whole lot better. Um, so how do we define the word faith? Well, I, I, that just really resonates with me, the way you put that, if if only. Yeah, yeah if only. <laughs> if only people in the church, frankly, often had a clearer or a more f- fulfilled out understanding of what is faith. 
So Richard Dawkins sort of famously or, or infamously uh, says that faith is believing in the face of evidence or even in the teeth of evidence. Yeah. I just think, oh my goodness, every time I watch uh, a, a television show or a movie and the character is having a, a real crisis of some sort and they're encouraged to just, you know, you got to have faith, you got to just take a leap. The yeah. idea is you just blindly... Yeah. dive into a situation sort of hoping for the best but not really having yeah. a basis oh i just cringe every time yeah for sure but even worse when i hear believers say the same thing yeah. um so what is faith well i there's a couple of i think there's a few threads that would have to be wound together to get get the full uh version of uh, or the full concept in mind faith is of course uh, a matter of belief you know, it's true that in virtue of having faith, Christians are said to believe certain things so that I don't think that you have a historic Christian faith apart from believing a handful of, at least, a handful of, of, of uh, backbone concepts that God exists, that Jesus is truly the Son of God, and uh, that, that sin is a reality and that it has caused a rift between us and the Creator— that Jesus has come incarnate in the person of uh, that the second person Trinity has come incarnate in the person of Jesus of Nazareth to provide redemption and so forth. So it, it, and others and I, so I do think that faith involves belief, but it involves more than uh, as is sometimes put the assent to factual claims. Mm-hmm. Faith is a relationship, of course. Um, and here's where I think apologetics is uh, useful but n- often overlooked. So I tell my students um, that this December, uh, my wife Julie and I will, will hit 15 years of being married. Congratulations. Well, thanks a lot. I, it's, it seems odd that time has gone by so quickly. Yeah, I'm two months in. So Two months in, wow. <laughs> we, we dated for two months and got engaged. No but, way. That's uh, awesome. Maybe put that out. I don't want your viewers thinking I recommend it. <laughs> <laughs> so I have a lot of faith in Julie, and I had a lot of faith in her when we got married. Uh, it would be odd to marry someone initially in whom you don't have faith. Yeah. But I have a whole lot more faith in her now than I did you know, two months in or five years in or ten years in. And the reason is obvious, 21 and, and the same situation in life. I have increased faith in Julie precisely because I have a longer track record from her of reasons and evidence for thinking her trustworthy. Yeah. It's very similar, by the way, to um, the initially very odd situation of God directing Abraham to sacrifice his son. Yeah. Well, you think, what in the world is wrong with Abraham even listening to some, something of that sort? It's his son. Well, he wouldn't have, apart from a long track record of believability, a track record of evidence, trustworthiness from God. And here I think apologetics can really help, uh, can really help uh, a a believer's faith grow. Um, To to shift the metaphor a little bit, the illustration, you have a checking account, I'm sure, Mm -hmm. and I have a checking account. And I don't even know most of the individuals there. I just give them all of my money to hold. Yeah. Well, I wouldn't just do that yeah. out there just with any random person I see at Starbucks. But each time over the years, issues have come up or things have gone 
uh, sideways and, uh, you know, with payments and this and that, the bank has, has done me well and uh, has demonstrated their trustworthiness and my faith in them has grown. Yeah. This is very similar to how it works in the Christian life. So I think that uh, apologetics has a lot to offer mm-hmm. uh, in, in this sense of growing faith, not only defending the believability of Christian truth claims and overcoming uh, naturalistic or, or uh, uh, counterfeit faith objections, but also in helping us conceptualize the trustworthiness of the Lord Jesus. Yeah, I think you're touching on what I've called or perhaps I've heard. I'm not going to make a claim that I'm the one that deemed this, but uh, the the dual purpose of apologetics, which is which is really to uh, answer critics and skeptics, but also to strengthen believers. Um, yeah. it, it achieves both. So you would say faith is something uh, less like a blind allegiance and more like uh, evidence-based trust? Yeah, I think that's I think that's a much better way to put it. Yeah, so that the relationship is this way. Something doesn't have to be uh, proven rationally true in order to be believed by a Christian. I think that would be um, that would be to accept a gift we should return from the Enlightenment. Yeah. Um, sometimes called theological rationalism. Um, but the relationship is one of support so that I, the more reason that I have to believe something uh, or in someone, then the more faith I can have. Uh, and that is opposed to the idea that there's a sliding scale this way so that the more faith you have, the less room there is for reason. Or on the other hand, the more reason you have, the less room there is for faith. I think both of those would be uh, mistaken. They grow together. Mm-hmm. Oh, that was going to be my next question: was the relationship between faith and reason? <clears throat> all right, <laughs> but that's all right. You got you've got a list yeah. of them, I guess. Uh, so there's also this part in the book that I really liked, and um, I actually didn't make a note of it. You just made me think of it, so I hope I can describe it well enough to jog your memory. You wrote the thing, so hopefully. But uh, <laughs> there's a part where you talk about how, you know, the lady, the old lady living out in the country, who's a Christian, and she's probably. Do you recall this? Yes, and she has no, you know, probably has no access to like apologetic material and stuff. It's not unreasonable for her to believe, even though yeah. she doesn't know probably any of the arguments for God or Jesus or the Bible that you and I might be familiar with. Um, can you kind of touch on that? Yeah, I think this is an important thing that needs to be kept in mind. And I'll say that a lot of apologists are are uh, sensitive to this question and are keen to be clear on on this issue. We need to be careful when we define apologetics and when we teach at churches and so on to not communicate the idea that you cannot have faith or maybe put a little more directly that you cannot be uh, a rational believer in the Christian worldview unless you can defend all of these things and articulate, you know, three or a half a dozen really crisp arguments for God's existence. And, uh, and you know, you don't have to have a PhD or a handful of PhDs in order to be perfectly rational in holding to your faith. And I think there are a couple of good reasons to think this, but one of them is that 
uh, well, we know people who we know of great examples from history and usually in our ordinary lives of people who are very mature in the faith, uh, who clearly have a deep and abiding relationship with the Creator, and who have and continue to do lots of excellent work for the kingdom, who just aren't familiar with, you know, all of the intricacies involved in the debate over the second premise of the Kalam cosmological <laughs> argument, or the, the reasons to continue believing in the principle of sufficient reason from the Leibnizian cosmological yeah. argument. You know, my grandmother, who's a wonderful believer in the Lord, and went to Bible college, wouldn't have the first idea what those premises are, never mind the debates over them, and that's, that's fine. But at the same time, um, oh, sorry, uh, let, me, let me stay on this thought sure. here. I've got the professor's nasty habit of uh, spotting a relevant rabbit trail and immediately yeah. wanting to walk down it for a little ways and come back. <laughs> so why is this? Uh, there have been a couple of reasons. There's, there's uh, one camp that is, is called the Reformed Epistemology Camp. This is uh, really made famous by Alvin Plantinga. Uh, who has has reasons, and we we tend not to go that direction uh, in our book. Um, but one other reason why you don't need to be an expert in apologetics or philosophy or biochemistry or string theory or whatever in order to be a rational Christian is that you have the indwelling witness of the Holy Spirit in your life if you are a believer. Mm. Now this, as William Lane Craig has emphasized, is more a matter of how I can know, apart from reasons, uh, rational reasons. This wouldn't be uh, something to look to for compelling evidence to show others. Right. But I know, whenever I'm having you know times of doubt and struggle and so forth, that um, I am a believer because of the change in my life, the personal relationship I have, this uh, self-authenticating witness of the Holy Spirit, as, as uh, Craig puts it. Yeah, I mean, I know, and I've said this before to the audience, the number one way that I know, um, initially knew that uh, Christianity was, was true, was an experience that I had uh, in, in, my, in my conversion my repentance and turning to Christ, and obviously my actions didn't change overnight, but my desires certainly did. That's right. And uh, I, that's what that was my moment of oh, this is actually real. This is actually true. Apologetics didn't come until afterwards, and I think yeah. that's been true for for most people. There are, I mean, there are people who get um, who convert because they are convinced with their mind uh, first. Sure. Uh, yeah, um, and it's, would, that's an important note to underscore, if you don't mind, Hayden. Yeah, sure. I think, I think in our, uh, in at least in the evangelical tradition, there tends to be a skepticism. Uh, you know, no one actually ever comes to faith because of these arguments and oh, so yeah, on. Sure, they do. Yeah, it's really true that we do, we don't engage in apologetics in some fruitless attempt to argue people into heaven. You can't argue anybody into heaven, of course. And you can't preach anyone into heaven. You can't pray anyone into heaven or cry yeah. anyone into heaven. But it doesn't mean we should stop yeah. preaching and praying and, and crying and uh, engaging in apologetic encounters with people to, 
to try and allow ourselves to be used by the Holy Spirit, which is really what happens in any conversion. Yeah. And so uh, think of the famous story of C.S. Lewis, Alistair McGrath in our own day, and, and plenty of others who, yeah. whose testimony is that apologetics played a critical role in their yeah. coming to faith. Yeah. I, I think you just gave me a response to people who's, who say that from now on. So they'll say, you know, Hayden, why, you, apologetics is useless. We can't argue people into heaven. I say, well, I guess yeah. preaching's useless because we can't preach them into heaven either. I guess we should shut yeah. down the pulpits and the churches. <laughs> yeah. No one would want to do that. No, of course not. There's, there's such a there's an enormous space between uh, apologetics is is useless in that it can't argue anyone in heaven. Or sorry, there's a huge space between apologetics is not capable of arguing someone in heaven, and therefore apologetics is useless. Yeah. There's a there's a lot of space between yeah. there. Yeah, for sure. Okay, so let's get to the the brilliance and the beauty of yeah. the gospel, this unique part of the book, um, or at least it has been in, in my experience with reading books on apologetics. Um, what is it we're talking about when, you, when we talk about the beauty or the brilliance of the gospel? Yeah, you know, this is whenever you, whenever you set out to come up with a book title, mm-hmm. all of the best titles were... Uh, hundreds of years old. You, you ever look at the book titles from say 200 years ago, and they're like five lines long. Yeah, like it's like three or four sentences, and uh-huh. you get really the idea. Ah, it's a pity we can't do that any longer. You have yeah, to. Yeah, they won't sell. Short titles. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> doesn't exactly roll off the tongue when it's yeah. a paragraph for a title. Yeah. But uh, brilliance is uh, a double entendre. Something is brilliant in an intellectual sense if it's, you know, wow, very clever, really logically appealing and so on. But there's also a sense in which you'd say of, uh, say of um, some gals uh, uh, just received um, engagement ring. Okay. You know, all of the friends want to look at it and you, and you notice that, that the diamond has a certain brilliance to it, yeah. right? It it appears it it appears in a certain way to us. Yeah. So there's a, both senses of brilliance are in mind here, uh, but we also think that uh, we need to keep in mind the beauty. And so throughout the book, we attempt to argue for the rationality of Christianity. We walk we walk through loads of arguments for God and for uh, Christian claims, the historicity of the resurrection not only the logical possibility of miracles, but indeed the plausibility of believing miracles actually have and do happen. We talk about uh, counterfeit gospels, that is, um, other faiths that are uh, competitors with Christianity. We talk about the nature of truth. We, we walk through a lot of evidence. And those things really uh, speak to, we believe, the brilliance of the gospel. But what we what we believe is oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes overlooked uh, or not sufficiently discussed in apologetic books is the attractiveness mm-hmm. of the Christian gospel. Now, to be clear, we're not saying that, boy, we really, really wish, we really feel like it would be nice if the Christian worldview were true, so... 
we're just going to believe it. We're just going to choose to make it our truth. It's not what it's about. So to be clear, we don't believe out of some uh, psychological crutch or some just sort of wish, you know, like I, I wish cancer were not a reality, so I'm just going to believe there's no such thing. It's not, it's not that at all. We're attempting to couple with the brilliance of the gospel a clear articulation of the Christian worldview's attractiveness, and in particular the main thesis of Christianity, the gospel. It is attractive. It's a beautiful story. Uh, and this, we really emphasize this at the end of the book. We try to ring the bell throughout the chapters, but uh, we have a, a closing section or perhaps even a chapter, I, I don't remember now, where we really accentuate the beauty of the gospel. It's, it's not only true, but it speaks to our longings. Uh, it helps us organize within, uh, inwardly organize our soul and outwardly um, orient our souls to the direction of life that is proper. Mm -hmm. That is, uh, you know, what's going on in the background here is just what Augustine says in the very opening line of the very first page of his uh, terrific classic, uh, The Confessions, that uh, one's soul is restless until it finds rest in God. Uh, and so this is something that we agree with. So it's not a surprise then to discover that the Christian worldview is more than true, and I mean that more than true. It is, uh, it is the proper music to which our lives have to be tuned if they're to be played out correctly. Mm -hmm. And that's an attractive thing when, whenever it is seen. We think this connects us, uh, connects us up at the most deep level of our soul. Yeah, I may even take it a step further and say that this may actually be, I don't want to say more important, but as far as when you engage, um, you know, a non-believer or somebody of a different faith, uh, you know, um, being able to articulate that the gospel is beautiful may actually may actually be more important than, than uh, it's, especially for today's culture in which we are uh, extremely <clears throat> I don't want to say not rational, but we're definitely more emotional than we are rational uh, yeah. today. And you know, some some atheists will even um, actually admit to the beauty of the gospel and, and saying, yeah, it would be nice if when we died, we all got together afterwards and, and lived on. But I'm not going to, can't yeah. force myself to believe that, is, I think right. is the way yeah. I've heard some say it. Well, it's no accident that our culture, well, it's no coincidence, I should say, that our culture follows the Enlightenment, but it also more recently follows the Romanticism of the 19th and even early 20th century. We're not that far removed from this cultural shift that you are pointing to. Yeah, and so some have used the term post-truth, um, and, <laughs> and if that's true, then we, we do need to understand that the gospel isn't just true for a post-truth culture. It's also beautiful for a culture that is... Um, striving emotionally and emotionally charged and all that well if you want to hear more from dr lofton you're going to have to stick around for the bonus segment five more minutes with dr r keith lofton and uh, i'm going to ask him a couple of more questions but if you're not a patron you need to go ahead and follow the link in the description and become a patron uh, for as little as a dollar uh, we appreciate all your support guys dr lofton thanks so much for coming on uh, we'll have to do this again sometime it's been a lot of fun 
My pleasure, Hayden. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining us, guys. If you enjoyed the episode, be sure to hit the like button, subscribe, leave us a review, and head on over to the Patreon page. There's a link in the description to watch the bonus segment. Uh, you can become a supporter for, of the show for as little as a dollar a month. Thanks so much for joining us, guys. We'll see you next time.